Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This fifth season of our podcast is a special deep dive into a case that we covered as it was happening. The trial of Robert Durst for the murder of his good friend and confidant, Susan Berman. In Jury Duty, the Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks, we present a series of exclusive interviews with L.A. Deputy D.A. John Lewin, the lead prosecutor in that trial. John takes us on his journey from the very beginning of his involvement with the case, through the trial, and through the death of Robert Durst on January 10th, 2022. In our last installment, John offered some bold thoughts on how the defense should have argued their case. We also reviewed the testimony of several other witnesses in the trial. In this episode, Lewin shares his team's strategy for introducing at trial material from Robert Durst's trial for the murder of Morris Black in Galveston, Texas. That's all coming up right after the break. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. A few quick program notes. Because the interviews had to be conducted by phone during one of John's early morning or late evening neighborhood hikes along a busy coastal road, the quality often is not optimal. We will clarify when it seems critical to understanding Lewin's narrative. Also, in the event that you would like to revisit the Galveston section of the trial that Lewin describes in this episode, check out Season 2, Episode 10 of this Jury Duty podcast. And if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. And now, here's more of my conversation with John Lewin. Okay, the next stuff I want to cover is the way that you dealt with all of the Galveston material. And specifically, by my records, it looks like you called two live witnesses and the rest was read into the record in front of the jury. Is that your memory as well? I I can't tell you what the numbers are, but here's what I can tell you. Once we got the Galveston evidence in, we knew that one of the priorities for the defense attorneys, Chesnoff and Garen in particular, was that they wanted this trial to be over as quickly as possible. So what we did was we basically wait, wait, said, why, is, hey, why, why is that? In other words, after you got that evidence in, you knew that they wanted it to be over as quickly as possible, or you already knew that, and then after Galveston, you... So we, knew from, we knew from the start right. that a priority for them seemed to be to be in court as little as possible. We recognized this very early, and there was a pattern. We would come to them early regarding certain stipulations that would shorten the trial or the prelims. They would say, no, we're not doing that. And then as things got closer, they would either change their mind or what would happen was we would start putting on witnesses, and then they would say, oh, we want to stipulate. So once we knew that, our approach was, okay, even when they say no to stipulations, we're going to do the work anyway, because in the end, they'll be begging us to stipulate for anything that will shorten the trial. And that's what happened. So in Galveston, there were a number of witnesses who, number one, were unavailable. 
So, for instance, the coroner, we got a stipulation from them that he was unavailable because he was. He was couldn't travel, had a lot of very sick. But once you have a stipulation to unavailability, that means prior testimony comes in. And in this case, they never litigated it, but they would have lost. The prior testimony from Galveston would have come in in our trial. Even though it wasn't our trial, they had the identical motivation. It was the same lawyers. So we would have won that issue. However, what that normally would have meant is that you would go through line by line on the testimony and argue what should or should not come in. And we learned very early that they didn't have the interest in doing that. So what we would do is we would go through, edit things. We would give it to them and tell them, okay, here's what it's going to be. Now, every once in a while, they would make some changes to it. And, in fact, there was one time where Dick actually caught something that shouldn't have been in there. Not intentional on our part. We just missed it. And we, we did the editing, not to see what we could sneak in, but we did the editing with what we thought should be presented to the jury that was relevant and admissible evidence. So that is the approach that we took. When it came to specifically the Galveston testimony, most of it, and I'll give you an example, the hardware manager from Chalmers. Now, we could have called him back. He was available. But all he's going to do is he's going to come in. He's going to say that 15 years later, he doesn't really remember the specifics, and we'll be using his testimony from Galveston anyway. It will also take much more time, and they will also have to prepare to cross-examine. One of the advantages, in my opinion, for them with stipulating is that once you stipulated to a conditional examination witness or a prior witness who testifies the Galveston trial, there's no work for you to do. In other words, you don't cross-examine that person. It's just read into the, to the record. Now, as a part of the stipulation, they were still allowed to call these witnesses in their own case. So any witness who they didn't like what they said, first of all, they had to stipulate to the actual transcript. That was one of the things that was quite entertaining, for instance, with Mike Strzok. When Strzok, when we played his case examination testimony, Dick jumped up and started objecting. This is terrible. This evidence should not be admitted. You know, how can, how is this admitted into evidence? And the judge was, I think, dumbfounded because the judge is like, well, wait a minute. You were here when he testified originally, and you signed up. You stipulated that all of this was coming in. The judge then added, by the way, there are things in the testimony that I would not have allowed in, but you stipulated to it. So it was, we knew this in advance. So with respect to the Galveston witnesses, the only witnesses that we were going to call were individuals who either didn't testify in Galveston or whether we thought there was some advantage in having them come in to personally testify. And... So as an example, Randy Burroughs needed to testify regarding the search. We got a great stipulation. Habib worked on it for a long period of time. But we got a stipulation on Gary Jones, which covered all of the recovery of the body parts, all of the of the work that Gary Jones did. Now, by the way. Well, Gary, now that just is, to clarify, Randy Burroughs was part of the dive team. Who was Gary Jones? Gary Jones and Cody Caslis were the lead detectives on the case, and Gary Jones did all of the evidence recovery. Now, now Gary Jones testified in Galveston, but there were things they didn't cover with him in Galveston. So what we did with Gary Jones, we didn't use conditional examination testimony because he didn't testify, and we didn't use 
his testimony from Galveston. We basically wrote out an incredibly long stipulation of what he would testify to, and it was stipulated to by the defense. It's the same tactic we took with Andrew Jarecki. Now, if I were the defense, would I have stipulated to that? Absolutely not. Not in a thousand years. But, you know, we knew that they would likely stipulate. And like everything else, they originally said, we're not stipulating, we're not interested. So early on, and this was my position very strongly, so early on, my team did not think we were going to get stipulations and all this stuff. And my position was, oh, they're going to stipulate. Well, they're saying, no, they won't do it. Yeah, they're saying that today, but just watch. So two or three years into this, we all learned that, okay, yeah, they're going to say we're not stipulating, et cetera. But once it's time, they'll stipulate. The line that we used to say, that I used to say was, is that Chesnoff and DeGarren are like standing on a high diving board. And we would be yelling, there's no water in the pool. They don't care. They have to jump and hit their head on the concrete. And once they do that, then they're like, wow, there's no water in the pool. So that's how we handled it. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The next part of our conversation begins with my asking John Lewin about his interactions with the defense team over stipulations with respect to the Galveston material. Stipulations, or stiffs as they are sometimes called, are agreements between two or more parties in a legal proceeding that resolve or address certain subjects or areas of dispute. One memory that I have early in our coverage, I remember a moment before a hearing one day where you were expressing something between irritation and outrage at Chesnoff. Perhaps it was about some accusations of unethical behavior or whatever it was, but you walked out of the courtroom saying to Chesnoff, no stips, no stips. Do you remember this situation? I mean, here's what would happen is that they would play this game, and they would say, we're not going to do it. So I would tell them, okay, listen, here's the situation. You have till X date. If you don't do it, I'm not going to stipulate, and we're going to be bringing in whatever witness it might be. Because I think probably what happened was is that they had either agreed to something or they had said, no, we're not going to do it. So, okay. Their problem is is that they very much need to experience the negative consequences of their behavior or it doesn't change. So that's what we had to do. Now, after a while, I had Habib deal with them on these issues, and that was very effective. You know, Habib would tell them, hey, listen, Lewin's crazy. He's going to, you know, it's up to him. He doesn't care if this trial takes two years. And and the second part's true. I didn't care. I was having a great time. I wouldn't have mind. The only issue for me on timing was Bob. Otherwise, I wish I was still in trial. So back to your original question. So I remember Randy Burroughs testified, and most importantly – and I spent a lot of time locating this guy, is I found Ben Hodges. It took me months to locate an expert who could testify specifically about the tides in Galveston Bay. Months and months and months. 
when I finally got him, he was huge. Because if you remember, in the Galveston trial, Dick basically made the argument that the head had been either washed out to sea or carried away by a crab, whatever it might be. Do you remember that? Absolutely, yes. Well, it was preposterous. And once I got Ben Hodges and was able to scientifically prove it was preposterous, the reason we got Randy Burroughs is because to call it the sheriff's dive team is a bit of a misnomer. It was the sheriff's wading team. The water was only up to their ankles. So they weren't diving. They were just walking their grid, and there was no head. So, and again, and you'll have to judge the cross-examination yourself, but if you look at the cross with Dick on Ben Hodges, it's as if he didn't have any idea what the guy had written, what his position was going to be. Dick literally argued with him. Well, that's not true, is it? Well, yes, sir, it is true. Well, it could have been a crab. Well, no, in my experience as a marine biologist, there is no, you know, I mean, he just killed him. And Dick seemed to be in almost a state of shock that this guy was killing him. So, if, you know, I'll just go in one more time. And again, you know, a constant mistake by the defense. They thought they were the snake and the witness was the bunny. It was the other way around. And, and I don't know that Dick ever realized it. He got bitten so many times, there's nothing left of him. By the way, I want to distinguish Chip, who's a very good lawyer. Chip understood that his goal, since they really couldn't do anything to make things any better, Chip's goal was don't make it any worse. If you don't have any penetrating questions, ask very little. If you have an area that, you know what, what do you do with Marion Barnes, for instance, you know, the whole how many questions did Lewin ask, et cetera. Great idea, wrong witness. But at least Chip put out there the idea that, well, this is coming from Lewin, not the witness, even though that wasn't accurate. But Chip always seemed to have a some kind of plan. Let me push back on that a little bit, because I remember Chip's cross of Ann Anderson Doyle. And, you know, he, he sort of vaguely flirted with her, talking about how she was a, a an attractive model at the time, and then tried to glide into Club Xenon and cocaine use and all that stuff. So I, I feel like Chip was prone to some of the same mistakes on well, Ross. Well, my impression was, and I would hear it, is that even with Chip's witnesses, you had DeGaron and Chesnoff yelling in his ear, and Bob even to some degree, saying, you know, ask this, do this. So basically, you know, Chip was in the hard position of where you're in the boat, but you're not steering it. That's really hard. I refuse to be in a boat that I'm not steering. I've been doing this too long. I have too many opinions. You know, I will not be on a case where I'm not the one making the ultimate decision. Now, the exception to that is Beth Silver and I did a case, and it was Beth's case I came on to it. There are a few lawyers, and I mean less than a handful, that I respect so much that I can be in that position because I know that that other lawyer is going to listen to what I have to say. And as an example, Beth and I never had a substantive disagreement. Now, I would tell Beth, because it's funny, Beth is a phenomenal lawyer. Beth's favorite tool is the machete, okay? Beth goes in there, and she just leaves nothing unturned. And I would tell her the joke that I would have with her, Beth, okay, we got in the bank. We cleaned out the safe. We got the safe deposit boxes. We don't fucking need to grab the change drawer and get the quarters. Let's get out of the fucking bank. And Beth would go, I want the nickels, I want the pennies, 
I want the quarters, and we would laugh. But on substance stuff, we were in complete agreement. Other than that, I won't be on a case where I don't make the calls. I won't do it because it's not fair to the other lawyer. And, you know, I've been doing this too long now, and I think I've earned the position where, you know, I'm not going to be on a case where I'm not running it. And, you know, that's that's where I'm at. A couple of other things on Galveston. So I'm just going to tick through. I want to get to the use of Durst's testimony in Galveston. So before you go there, yeah, I want to tell you what the most important thing that we did with Galveston was. Great. Is in the original trial, what they did was they put Morris on trial. They brought in a bunch of incidents that technically should never have come in under the evidence code. And they used that to say that Morris was violent. They literally brought in the fact that allegedly Morris had told Bob that in while he was a merchant marine that he had killed some other person who had done something to his wife. There was no evidence of that whatsoever. They brought in all this. They, if you remember, and I went livid, during the opening, they put up a mugshot of Morris Black during the original opening. This was, he had been arrested in South Carolina years before he was killed on a dispute with the power company. And they tried to make the argument that Morris was going to blow up the power company. It was bullshit, and it was completely irrelevant. So one of the things that we made sure that we litigated was you can't put on any of this character evidence involving Morris. And the problem that you that you have, Bob Durst, is that, first of all, if you're claiming self-defense, then you can make an argument that Morris's prior conduct, subject to 352, time, et cetera, prejudice could come in. If you're claiming, well, it was an accident, I didn't intentionally shoot him, then self-defense is irrelevant. They were claiming both. So what we said is, listen, what's your defense? They would never really say it. It ended up being both. And defense says, well, we want Bob to testify to what he knew about Morris Black. So the judge ended up saying, well, listen, right now the prosecutors are right. If Bob Durst wants to get up on the stand and testify specifically to information he had about Morris, what that information was, and how he took that information, then we'll explore it then. You need to approach before you do it. They still try to do it without approaching. And if I allow any of it in, the prosecution's right, there'll be an instruction to the jury saying, you know, you have to first decide that that information is true. In other words, you have to decide, first of all, did it actually happen, and did Bob Durst know about it? And then once you decide that, only until you decide that, then you are strictly limited as to how you can use it. So we knew it was bullshit. It doesn't exist. It's made up. And in the end, I honestly think that they made a quick attempt at it. They pretty much either for, they forgot, never even put it on. Or when they put it on, we objected and we nipped it in the butt. So that was huge. Because remember, the reason they were successful in Galveston is they made Morris out to be this violent offender. It was crap. Morris was a crotchety old man. That's it, nothing more. Now, our jurors understood that, so it did not work. Had they put it on, in Galveston, they literally put on evidence that Morris, while he was in hospital for surgery, had to be tied down and had allegedly assaulted a nurse. Three levels of hearsay while he's being medicated. It's absurd. So, again, one of the things we did was we were on our game. We knew our shit. We knew the evidence code, and we made sure that anything they tried to do, they had to have the ability to do it. And they weren't used to that. 
my impression is Chesnoff and DeGaron, when they walk into court, they're used to basically doing whatever they want, and either the defense, the prosecution doesn't object, the judge doesn't know, whatever it might be. Well, we knew, and we had a really good judge. And it also frustrated the hell out of them. I knew that every time they got shut down, they did not have the ability to regroup and refocus. They don't. So it would turn bad examinations into terrible examinations. So one of the things that I learned early is that the more contentious it got, I'd rather have it be friendly, but the more contentious it got, I am well-equipped to play in that environment. It only makes me more focused, doesn't detract from my ability to quickly go to the evidence code. That was not true for them. When they hit roadblocks and got frustrated, they couldn't even talk. You notice there were times when Chesnoff would whisper objections that didn't even make any sense, but he would just whisper them. And I would say, can you, can you say that out loud? And the judge would oftentimes try to help them out, but it was very clear they didn't know the evidence code. They didn't know basic objections. They didn't know what hearsay was. So anyway, that was the first thing that we did in advance. And that was key because, let's face it, what they did in Galveston was they made the jury hate Morris Black. They made him out to be something he wasn't. Then they made it sound like his killing was justified. That was all bullshit. And we weren't going to allow it. And we didn't. So go ahead. So the witness testimony that you did put forward, besides Bob's, which I want to get to separately, there was David Avina, Klaus Dillman, Michael Ogden, Ted Hanley, Charles Harvey, Mario Tricacci, Zena Simmons. Lewin begins his response to this question about his team's use of testimony from the Galveston trial by focusing on the testimony of Klaus Dillman, the German-born hairdresser who was landlord to Robert Durst and Morris Black. Durst had rented the unit in Dillman's boarding house disguised as a mute woman named Dorothy Siner. So Klaus was important because he gave the timeline of both Bob and Morris. He also was very funny. And the jury, you know, we were hoping he'd be able to testify. He ended up passing away. But I remember when he was interviewed, um, there's a very thick German accent. He was a hairdresser. Liz Camacho's going to kill me for this, but it's funny. So when we met him, Liz, as most women do, has her hair dyed. So I, of course, had to say to Klaus, uh, Klaus, um, uh, uh, you know, Detective Camacho is telling me this is her natural color. I just don't believe her. And she's, like, horrified. And Klaus's like, the hair color is very good. It's a good spine job. It's just very good. Um, she's done good work here. So if you notice the and he's going through, it's very funny. So the other thing that was hysterical about him is, originally, I can't remember if this is in the trial or in one of his interviews, but he's talking about how he met Bob as Dorothy Siner. And he says something to the effect of, um, you know, so what was she like? That she was, um, she was not unattractive. And she, you know, she was, she had the small breastfuses. Oh, my God. You couldn't make it up. So Klaus was a character. I was hoping to be able to call him, but that's really what he did. Lewin next talks about the testimony of Charles Harvey, the chief medical examiner of Galveston County. Harvey was very important because of the cause of death, the autopsy that was done, some of the injuries, etc. So very important. But we didn't need him. We, we had his testimony. Lewin moves on to discuss the importance of Mario Chikachi, the manager of Chalmers Hardware Store in Galveston, where Robert Durst purchased a bow saw. 
Sakachi, the manager, was extremely important because of the timing of what was involved. So it gets a little bit complicated, but remember, Bob originally writes down in the timeline, the B story, he writes down that he bought the Bosaw at Chalmers. That's the BD story. By the time he testifies in Galveston and Sakachi testifies and basically says that that's impossible, they only sold one, and it was to the uh, guy who worked at the Marine, Everett Ward, who Bob would later use. He would steal Everett Ward's ID, and that's when he would check in in the hotel in Louisiana in 2015. But Bob realized when Sakachi testified, and Sakachi testified, remember, before he did, that he couldn't use what he was going to use. And remember, at this time, Nobody has the BD story except Bob and his lawyers. So Bob gets up on the stand, changes it, and now says that the Bosaw was in Morris's closet. So Sakaki was really important because of the timeline of the saw. Finally, he was important because Bob ends up having, if you remember, when he's arrested on October 9th or 10th, there is a brand new Bosaw in the car. Brand new. Never been used. That is not the one that Bob used to dismember Morris by Bob's own admission. And that caused Bob to have to come up with a crazy story, how he got, remember, he he was on a road with the logs, and he drove and bought the Bosa in New Orleans. It was bullshit. But Sakachi was instrumental in that as well. Lewin then discusses his use of the Galveston testimonies of David Avina, whose son discovered Morris Black's torso floating in Galveston Bay, and Zena Simmons, who cleaned Durst's apartment in Galveston. David Avina was just locating the body. N not a whole lot there. We certainly could have brought him out, you know, and explained what it was, but we didn't need it, so we were fine with that. Oh, Zena Simmons. Zena Simmons was important because... Bob is having her clean the place, and he's giving her another fake name. So this was more evidence. This is right before he took off. This is more evidence that Bob did not want anybody connecting the name Bob Durst or even the other alias he was using to the, the apartment on K. So Bob kept, during his testimony, Bob would argue, hey, I wasn't hiding who I was. Like, I went into the bank. Well, what he was doing, though is he was hiding that it was Bob Durst connected to that address. And that was really important because we know he's going to kill Morris. Lewin next talks about the testimony of Ted Hanley, the director of a small Galveston charity who Morris Black introduced to Durst in an effort to induce Bob into making a donation to that charity. Now, Hanley was also important because Hanley basically was able to humanize Morris, but also to bring up Bob going in there and talking about making a donation. And we knew that by the time Hanley's testimony was read in, that the jury was going to go, wait a minute, this cheap guy would never have done, have donated money. Why is he donating money? Well, he's donating money because Morris is forcing him to donate money. So that went to the motive as well. Hanley was the eyeglasses for indigent people yeah. guy, right? Well, Hanley operated... The, the church down there, and this is where Morris had volunteered on his own. Morris wanted to hand out the eyeglass. And remember, Hanley was the one who had met Bob. Bob had come in disguised, wearing glasses, etc., because Bob was trying to show Morris that it was a scam because Bob didn't want to get money. You know, so, again, now we go all the way back. Why did Bob kill Morris? Well, I believe that he killed Morris because, in the end, Morris knew who Bob was. 
And remember, one of the smartest arguments that Chip made in the case was a very good argument. Chip said, hey, listen, yeah, you can prove that Morris Black knew Bob's name, but you can't prove that Morris Black knew anything about actually, you know, who Bob was, that he was running, et cetera. And our position was, well, wait a minute. Bob has admitted that Morris knew his name, knew he was rich, and knew he wanted to get away from his name. Morris is very curious. They go to the library every day. Do you really think it's reasonable to believe that Morris never Googled him? Now, Bob, in typical Bob fashion, made that whole argument irrelevant. Moot, when Bob gets up and says that Morris Black, he told Morris Black all about the situation with Janine Pirro. So as usual, Bob, in his, you know, lying and unplanned testimony, gave us the motive for why he killed Morris. He killed Morris because Morris knew who he was and was making demands on him for money. And that's not my speculation. Bob was saying Morris was pressuring him to buy a place. And I believe, if you ask him what I believe happened, I believe that Morris caught Bob leaving, confronted Bob. Bob went into the other room like he told Sarah, got the gun. There was a struggle. One shot went off into the kitchen of the high wall. Morris got knocked to the ground, and the second shot, Bob shot him in the in the head. Uh, could have easily have been the front of his head. Um, I ended up after Tom Bevel. You didn't mention Tom Bevel. Tom Bevel was a crucial witness in Galveston, I mean, in Los Angeles. So Tom had testified in Galveston. Tom is one of the leading crime scene reconstructionists in the country. He, he, he wrote the book on it, Impeccable Credentials. Prosecution hired him in Galveston. Great move. And he testified. The problem was is that he was never provided with the defense reconstructionist report. He was never shown their simulation, and he was never present when Bob testified. So one of the first things that I did was I contacted Tom, and I sent him all those things. Well, Tom was able to look at Bob's testimony, and Bob's testimony itself was inconsistent with his own expert and with the simulation. And that makes sense. They had crafted a simulation and a defense that could potentially work. Now, there were a lot of problems with it when you watched it. You know, the hand end, ends up moving when it shouldn't, ends up on the top, the bottom. There were a lot of problems with it, but it was workable. The problem is, is that Bob had to end up testifying consistent with his expert and the, and the simulation, and he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it in Galveston. So we knew in advance, before Bob took the stand, we knew that we were going to be able to prove beyond any doubt that Bob had completely lied about how the killing had happened in Galveston. It was a lie. He had lied, and we could prove it was a lie. And once we proved it was a lie, our position was going to be we were going to be able to show, hey, listen, he murdered this guy. So Tom Bevel was huge. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, the Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. Join us on our next installment as John Lewin discusses the testimonies of Robert Durst friend and Love Nest cohabitant Susie Giordano and other witnesses in the murder trial. Again, in the event that you would like to revisit the Galveston section of the trial that Lewin described in this episode, check out Season 2, Episode 10 of this Jury Duty podcast. And if you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. The episode was co-produced, written, and edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks.